Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal, lifelong battle with insomnia to just being a part of doing more than 30 years of morning television and radio. Well, when I dug a little deeper, it turned out there was far more to learn. So, in this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken, and maybe we stumble upon some answers together. This episode, a little bit of a departure, and honestly, I have never been so nervous about putting something out into the world. In case you didn't know, or you're new to the show, the Snooze Button Podcast is one small piece of a much larger project. The Snooze Button is, first and foremost, a book I'm in the middle of writing, hoping to have it out in time for Christmas or early in the new year. But the book includes interviews with tons of people, and if I was going to quote them accurately, I needed to record the interviews. Well, if I'm going to record them, I might as well release those interviews as podcast episodes. I feel like it's time for a progress update on the book, so... I am basically leaking the first three chapters of my book in audiobook form right here, right now, and I am terrified because uh, although multiple editors have had their eyes on this project and several have even read the text, this is the raw manuscript you're about to hear, including some thoughtful bleeping of some colorful metaphors. In addition, after the first three chapters are done, Dr. Michael Grandner is back from the University of Arizona talking about the latest science from the sleep world. But once you've had a chance to listen to these first three chapters, wow, would I love to hear your feedback on this. And do me a favor, be a little bit gentle, would you? Here we go. Chapter one. Phillips is an ass. Whether that's his real name doesn't matter. All you know is that it's the name printed on the front. If it was good enough for Tom Hanks in that movie with the volleyball named Wilson, the same rule should apply to your alarm clock. Stop nitpicking. So anyway, Phillips is an ass. The last time you begged for something from an inanimate object, you were in college. You promised the toilet bowl that you'd give it the sun, the moon, and the stars, or at least promised you'd never drink again, if only it would grant you a narrow escape from whatever horrors lay beyond the next heave. The bull's name, of course, was Crane, an ass cut from the same ass cloth as Phillips. Crane, as it turned out, wasn't the least bit interested in any of your vicissitudes, let alone this one. It never gave the slightest hint of merciful acknowledgement. No, Crane sat rigidly, uselessly, maw gaping in judgmental horror that was oddly like that scream painting, teaching you a lesson you weren't meant to forget. Yet, here you are once again negotiating with a thing. Phillips, your once trusty alarm clock who has suddenly and viciously turned against you. You're not even at the alarm part yet, and already Phillips has left you hanging like a wildlife movie camera crew who scrambles back to the jeep and disappears into the hills as soon as the pack of jackals show up to devour the deer they've been filming. You've been lying in bed, bluntly awake, and even though it's been at least an hour since you looked at the time, Phillips claims it was only seven minutes ago. Seriously, Phillips, you have one, maybe two jobs. You're supposed to tell the time and every once in a while make some noises. And tonight you can't even get that right. What's that old saying? Even a broken clock is right twice a day? Yeah, so Phillips is whatever one step below broken is. The chess match with Phillips is fruitless. You apologize for all the times you hit the snooze button with a little too much gusto. Phillips remains stoic. Fine, whatever. If they didn't want you to hit the damn thing, it wouldn't be the biggest button on the clock radio. Back to bargaining. You offer to give up caffeine afternoon. Nothing. You offer to give it up altogether, which, as you're hearing the thought form into a cohesive sentence, you realize it would actually be more difficult than giving up oxygen. Doesn't matter, because Phillips ain't buying it. You remember that thing someone at work said about meditating, so you try and empty your mind and start counting your breaths. Instead of peaceful thoughts dripping with woo-woo and loving kindness, all you hear is the voice in your head yelling at you that if you can't even fall asleep, you must really suck at life. The voice starts to sound like the angry British guy at the end of that Pink Floyd song, Another Brick in the Wall, where he just keeps yelling, How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? About 90 minutes later, you check the clock again. Philip says, it's not 90, it was 11. Ass. You try appealing to Philip's better nature. 
Come on, you plead silently. Tomorrow's a huge day. This meeting with the boss will literally dictate the course of my entire career. I'll even settle for a nap at this point. Phillips doesn't even have the courtesy to show you the next minute. You interpret that as a not-so-gentle reminder that if you'd paid more attention to what time it was before you got into bed, you would have spent less time on Instagram and more time in REM sleep. Now you're feeling guilty. Guilty because you saw that article online that talked about how two out of three people have a couple nights a week marred by trouble sleeping. And here you are kvetching because you've been lying here for some undetermined portion of one night and you're already thinking it must violate the Geneva Convention. You've reached that point where there's no such thing as a comfortable position. The bedding is interminably hot, so you do that thing where you stick one foot out from under the covers. That was a bad idea, because now there's been a gust of cold air that ordinarily would have been as calming and refreshing as Marilyn Monroe standing over a sidewalk grate, but now reminds you of the feeling you get when your smart-ass friend gets to the bottom of the ski hill ten seconds after you did and skids to a sideways hall while driving a bunch of snow into your face. You try the cool side of the pillow. Hallelujah! No, wait, this is also the lumpy side of the pillow. You're pretty sure that just the movement of blood through your veins is enough motion to make the bed creak. So now that noise is keeping you awake. Now even the sound of your heart beating is reverberating in your head at a level that would make the bells of Big Ben jealous. And what is that your stomach is doing? Did you eat enough? Should you just lie there hungry? Isn't it bad to eat late at night? But you can't sit here and listen to your stomach growling until breakfast. It's happened. Your life has become the princess and the pea. Time becomes a fluid concept because now you're terrified to even look at Phillips as the clock moves through molasses like some kind of water torture. The idea presented itself that you might be better served just getting up and trying to function on extra coffee. But your last vaccination lasted longer than that thought stuck around. For hours now, it might have looked to the untrained eye as though you were trying your hand at breakdancing in your bed. Head, limbs, torso, never in one place for very long. Every move seeming to be made with some urgency. There was a moment where you caught a fleeting glimpse of Phillips, letting you know with the subtlety of a four-year-old learning the violin that you're less than an hour from having to hit the shower. And that's the last thing you remember, because somehow, miraculously, not long after that moment, You drifted off to sleep. And then it was over. The only way you knew you were sleeping is because the way it unfolded in your experience, you blinked. Blinked. That was it. Blinked. And then were jolted awake. Jolted awake by the sound of what in that moment was the most annoying voice in the history of humankind. It's the morning DJ on the local radio station, force-fed courtesy of Phillips the asshole. Except today, Radio Guy is particularly annoying, obliviously cheerful, aggressively perky, spouting some ridiculous tribe about what a beautiful day it's going to be. Idiot. Doesn't he know? You've had enough. If you hadn't put Phillips on the other side of the room, you would have already reached over, picked up your alarm clock, and thrown it there. Except that you got a whole 17 seconds of sleep, which has now been ravaged by this ridiculous clown on the radio who's being stuffed into your ear holes with, what is that, September by Earth, Wind, and Fire? You love that song, but right now you hate that song with the fire of a thousand suns, and you'd like to punch earth, wind, and fire right in their infectious, groovy faces if it weren't for the fact that you wanted to crack at this D-bag DJ who's now been welded to your brain by the traitorous Phillips. By the way, hi. This might be a good time to introduce myself. My name's Neil Headley, and for a whole ton of people in one of the largest cities in North America— That ridiculous D-bag clown on the radio is me. Chapter 2. Sleepless in... everywhere. Would it sound like I was sucking up if I said something like, I feel your pain? Let me explain. To say that I have some sleep issues is to imply a moth might have a short attention span. I would estimate that in the 30 years since I started in morning radio, I've probably had a total of a dozen nights where I had what would qualify as good sleep. 
That's something I bet most people don't stop to consider. The people you listen to on the radio when you wake up or watch on TV when you're getting ready or even just the ones who make your coffee as you're heading in have probably been at work since an hour or two before your alarm went off and are very likely sleep deprived. If you're having trouble sleeping too, maybe there's a touch of comfort in the fact that you and I are not alone. According to a massive study published in the journal Sleep, almost a third of us get less than six hours of sleep a night. That's a level of sleeplessness that puts you in the territory of chronic partial sleep deprivation. And lab tests tie that to impaired physiological and cognitive function. Except that I long for six hours a night. I have one of those Fitbit Versa 2 trackers that does your steps and your heart rate and also claims to track your sleep. It says that on weeknights over the course of the last month, I've averaged about three hours and 55 minutes a night. I've had more than one neuroscientist tell me that I appear to be functioning at a pretty high level for someone who gets that little sleep. To me, the cause of all this is pretty simple. My alarm goes off at three in the morning. If I'm attempting to get this magical eight hours of sleep that everyone raves about, that would mean going to bed by seven. Nothing screams, I'm kind of a big deal media celebrity, like being tucked in by your eight-month-old because you're down for the night before she is. Let's throw this into the mix, too. To actually give myself a shot at eight hours, I'd actually need to hit the sheets sometime around five or six, because according to both my Fitbit and my incredibly patient wife, it usually takes a couple of hours before I stop flopping around like mushrooms in a sauté pan. That's why I can't nap. The falling asleep part eats up all the available nap time, and I never get to actually be asleep. Among the differences between mushrooms in a sauté pan and my nocturnal maneuvers is that mushrooms don't leave marks. The evidence of my flailing about in the early stages of sleep was all over my wife's shins in the form of bruises I'd left there while literally kicking my way through the night. That's one reason sleep is finally on my radar after a 30-year schism. The other sleeps down the hall from us. Becoming a new dad again at the age of 51 has me thinking about what seems to be an insomnia-induced collision course with decline and dementia and how I can hold off this seemingly inevitable outcome long enough to participate meaningfully in things like moving my daughter into her dorm room at college and her graduation and her wedding day. Someone said to me once, can't you just move to a different time slot? There are so many reasons why that's a non-starter, but let me try and fill in some background in the hopes it all makes sense. According to various broadcast measurement companies, tens of millions of people still start their day with the radio. Makes a lot of sense when you consider that in your car, the radio is the one place you can legally get up-to-the-minute news, weather, traffic updates, and you've probably also found one that throws in just enough songs you like to get you to work in a slightly less toxic frame of mind but you can't forget the DJs. Note, just don't call them DJs anymore. Now, people on the radio demand that you call them personalities. Don't ask me why the term DJ has become a pejorative in recent years. Perhaps it's an aversion to being lumped in with that guy who plays the extended dance remix of the Macarena at your cousin's bar mitzvah. You know, the one who rolls up in the windowless white van is way too far in love with the sound of his own voice and demands cash at the end of the night so he can continue hitting on one of your relatives. That guy, he's a DJ. We're personalities. Most radio people, though, will tell you it's the morning show where the fun happens. The morning personality's job is to augment your favorite songs with the right mix of comedy, commentary, and commonality. In short, the personality's job is to be the person you'd like to be once your coffee kicks in. Today is an interesting example. It's the first day of spring 2019 in Toronto, a day with significance you really have to experience to Canadian winter to understand. And I'm with my morning partners, Samantha, Sam, Houston, and Jane Brown. Between the three of us, there's more than half a century of morning radio experience. As usual, Sam and Jane have brought their A-game today, getting listeners excited about the impossibly sunny day ahead with dispositions to match. They gleefully exchange stories about what this day full of possibility has in store with Sam excited about backyard renovation projects and Jane quite literally heading for the hills on what's likely the best day of the year to go skiing. Then it's my turn. 
The bright, shining promise of my day includes picking up three months' worth of dog droppings that have accumulated and then been buried under the snow in our front yard. Stop judging me. They're there partly as a visible, more smellable, really, protest against the incompetent contractors who promised we'd have our new lawn installed eight months ago. They're also there partly as a result of having an eight-month-old daughter, a one-hour commute into the city, and virtually no energy left when the workday is done, which, for me, is right around the same time everyone else is going for lunch. Sure, the polar opposite nature of my response is partly by design. If you're going to go by comedy's old rule of threes, the third thing in any list is supposed to be the one that gets the laugh. And the dissonance in my answer offsets the happy-go-lucky nature of the other two. Yet there's an undeniable truth buried not too far beneath the surface here. I've become something of a curmudgeon in my middle age. Maybe it's because I'm still struggling with having given up coffee a few weeks ago. Forsaken not because of the caffeine. It's because for the most part, I don't actually like the taste of coffee. I use it mostly as a clandestine delivery system for cream and sugar. My coffee is more like tiramisu in a travel mug. And at two or three Yetis full of coffee per day, my midsection has expanded to the point where I've asked my wife if we can remove the mirror in the bathroom so I don't accidentally catch a glimpse of myself getting out of the shower and choke out my raisin bran. The other possibility, though, is that chronic sleep deprivation is finally beginning to catch up with me. I decide it's time to investigate. Chapter 3. The Wake-Up Call One of the most ineffective things a person can do when they begin to wonder if they have a health concern is to consult Dr. Google. And yet, a surprising number of us do it. The ubiquitous search engine says that as of early 2019, there were about 70,000 searches per minute looking for health information. I shudder when I imagine how many of those were along the lines of, does this look infected? Google has taken its fair share of criticism over the veracity of the health advice that's linked to in their search results, but here's a common sense position that I'm sure will annoy at least a couple of hypochondriacs. Google is just the tool. If there's a strange noise coming from under the hood of your car and you start following step-by-step instructions to tear apart your engine from some guy you found on YouTube, that's on you. It's not the fault of the person who made the video. When it came my turn to try and learn some things about what might be broken about my sleep, diagnoses from self-appointed sleep gurus abounded. Of even greater concern were the treatment recommendations. Sleeping pills, pillows, even narcotics being internet prescribed by people with fake usernames who would probably be in a more expert position to make that YouTube video about how to disassemble your Yugo if they weren't so busy running their World of Warcraft message board. Alternately, I could have gone to the New York Times bestseller list and found an incredibly popular book about sleep written by an actual sleep scientist. You don't have to do a ton of Googling, though, to find a number of similarly qualified sleep experts questioning some of the more incendiary claims. Thankfully, I looked a little deeper started to find some pretty alarming studies. Start with the one from Washington University School of Medicine linking poor quality sleep with cognitive decline, brain damage, and Alzheimer's disease. For me, that was the big one. You don't have to look too far, though, to find that poor sleep gets the blame for everything from heart disease to low libido to hypertension to type 2 diabetes to cancer, and the list goes on. Sleep, apparently, is the culprit contributing to pretty much every ache and pain in the Western world, including your inability to get your hair to curl just the way you want it to. So, should we all just stay welded to the bed? Not so fast. There's a study from the University of Western Ontario showing that getting too much sleep causes just as much cognitive impairment as getting too little. In my first official foray into trying to decode some of the mysteries of sleep, I decided to take advantage of the fact that being in the media tends to open a few extra doors of conversation and follow up on that particular study, given that the sleep lab conducting the research was a two-hour drive from my house. At Western, I met Dr. Adrian Owen, a 50-something neuroscientist from the UK who runs not only the eponymous Owen Lab, but also Cambridge Brain Sciences, one of the world leaders in developing assessments of brain function and brain health. 
When I got to sit down for a chat with him, he was riding high from just having been named by Queen Elizabeth as an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire. OBE for his services to scientific research. I figured that as far as sleep gurus went, this guy was the rock star of rock stars. Several things caught me by surprise. First, that on some level, Adrian Owen is an actual rock star. Kinda. He's the frontman and lead guitarist for perhaps one of the least sexy subgenres in rock and roll history, an all neuroscientist band. I'd later discover that he's actually pretty good. The band is called Untidy Naked Dilemma, and there are concert videos scattered around the internet showing him doing a downright respectable job of it. The second curveball this sleep guru would throw at me is that he's not really a sleep guru at all. He says he started studying sleep because his real interest is in studying the brains of people who are in various levels of consciousness because of a coma or traumatic brain injury. In fact, one of his major claims to fame as a scientist is the discovery in 2006 that some patients who were believed to be in a persistent vegetative state were, in fact, fully aware and could actually communicate with the outside world using fMRI. He points out, though, that people in a persistent vegetative state are hard to find, while sleeping people are everywhere, and their brains are already going through similar changes in their states of consciousness. So, studying sleep gave him ready access to a ton of new and fascinating data. Dr. Owen had another surprise in store for me, though. I was under the impression that sleep experts pretty much had the whole slumber game nailed. Dr. Owen has shown up for work that day, having slept pretty poorly the night before. Turns out it was his first night back in his own bed after a 10-day vacation, woke up for two hours in the middle of the night, unable to get back to sleep. He says that's an improvement compared to the year or so he spent when he turned 50, waking up at 3 in the morning, tossing and turning, and trying a variety of over-the-counter remedies to try and get back to sleep, none of which really worked. So if it happens to Adrian Owen, it can happen to any of us. The study that Dr. Owen's lab published, sometimes referred to in the media as the world's largest sleep study, could more accurately be described as the world's largest sleep study of cognition. The difference matters because the Owen lab study took sleep data from thousands of participants, had them perform a series of tasks that were designed to measure their performance from a cognitive standpoint. There are three important takeaways here when it comes to cognition and sleep. First of all, the area that a ton of people jump to when they think of cognitive impairment, memory, was almost completely unaffected by suboptimal sleep. Second, it was decision-making that was profoundly affected. While Dr. Owen cautions that it might be oversimplifying a little to lump it all together as reasoning, sleep issues definitely have an impact on the hundreds of decisions we make every day. Everything from, should I buy that house, to, do I have time to stop at the store on the way to pick up the kids from school, to, is now a good time to change lanes on the highway? That last one resonated with me because I think of all the people out there on the road before their coffee has fully kicked in, and against my better judgment, I ask Dr. Owen the alarmist question, whether the research says that a person who only got four hours of sleep last night could be as dangerous as a drunk driver. He tells me that not only is it completely possible, in fact, it's very likely. There was a third major takeaway from the Owen Lab research, and it was one that even the researchers didn't see coming. The tests of cognition showed, somewhat predictably, that people who typically get about six hours of sleep per night displayed a cognitive impairment. People who habitually get four hours of sleep get a 10-year hit on their cognitive performance. In other words, if you're 40 years old and you habitually get four hours of sleep a night, you're performing at the same level as someone 10 years older than you. That wasn't the surprise, though. What the researchers found was that it works the same way with too much sleep. So getting 12 hours of sleep gives you the same performance deficit as the person who's only getting four. 
In addition to geeking out over subjects like neuroplasticity and the episode of the TV series House that featured Dave Matthews as a patient who needed a hemispherectomy, in other words, to have half his brain removed, Dr. Owen and I start talking about a fictitious person, a hard-charging type A personality who subscribes to the belief that sleep is for the weak and has climbed the ladder of success while wearing their five hours a night like a badge of honor. Dr. Owen says that according to the science, that person is cognitively impaired, but where the impairment shows up might be different for different people. As we talk about this person, we agree that there may be tons of us who are capable of even greater successes and higher levels of performance than we've achieved so far, and that perhaps all we need to do in order to unlock that performance boost is get a little more good quality sleep, but that it's something we may never try to get because we don't realize we're impaired to begin with. I liken it to something I saw comedian Paul Reiser bring up one night on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson when he talked about that feeling we've all had before where one of your ears suddenly clears and you didn't even know it was blocked. The look of recognition on Dr. Owen's face tells me I'm on the right track. Armed with all this knowledge, I decide to start investigating the specifics of my own sleep with a more science-based approach. And if it's true that all research is me-search, there were some answers coming my way that were going to be very bitter pills indeed. And there you go. Terror aside, there are the first three chapters of my book, The Snooze Button, before editors have even gotten their hands on it yet, although a number of them, as I said, have taken a glance through it. Um, If you are interested in more previews of the book or even just supporting that project at all, I'm going to direct you to our website at thesnoozebutton.com. Once you get there, there is a link at the top of the page that says Reviews, Feedback, and Support. Or if you're looking at it on a mobile device, it comes up as a menu that you can click on. Uh, Reviews, feedback, and support. And there's details there about how you can actually have editorial input on the book. What? Yeah, details are waiting for you there. In the meantime, somebody else who already has editorial input on the book, and I'll tell you about that sometime later. I'm going to catch you up on what the latest in sleep science is over the last 10 days or so with my friend Dr. Michael Grandner. All right, joining us for another week from uh, what the New York Times has rather unflatteringly labeled the pandemic hotspot capital of the world (laughs) is our friend uh, Michael Grandner. Uh, First of all, before I get to the big question that starts every episode, how does that label feel? You know, um, it's I definitely can see it when there, there was definitely a lot of uncertainty about how shutting down and isolating and masking was all going to work. And there's been a lot of confusion out there. And, you know, I I don't know how it has been in other states, but, you know, we've been trying to be very vigilant and, and aggressively conservative about this. But yet we've seen lots of people in the community not. And we've even had friends and family who've come down with it, even though they've been careful. So, you know, I could definitely see it. Uh, clearly, all the hypotheses that the sun is too hot for COVID is not true, even though it's 100 degrees out. Um, the fact that we're less dense than other places, you know, clearly it was just a matter of time. Um, and hopefully we get a clamp on this soon. Yeah. Um well, you can say that again. Uh, it, it's interesting watching from the other side of, you know, the world's longest unprotected border, blah, blah, blah. Um, and and it's interesting watching the numbers in Canada start to soar when you see the question being posed, are you afraid of COVID-19? And Canadians are becoming afraid of COVID-19 when you ask them why they say it's because of what's going on in America. And even though there's a border there, I think a lot of Canadians don't view themselves as being all that culturally dissimilar to Americans. I mean, we go to bars and movies and theaters and all the sports events and all those kinds of things too. And so we're looking at what's happening in the United States and we're going, okay, it's not very far away. I mean, even as I sit here, I'm a 40 minute drive from the border. Um, and, and I can be in Niagara, New York, uh, you know, in, in less than an hour if I need to. So there's a lot of people looking at it and going, man, if that's what's happening in America, how, how long before the rest of the world get either gets into a second wave or whatever it is, because America's not even out of the first wave yet. Yeah. And, and a lot of it seems to have to do with, um, public health messaging where, 
where when there's inconsistency in public health messaging, I think people don't quite know how to understand things. There's a great um, Medium article around the start of the pandemic that, that somebody wrote about this a problem with the so-called armchair epidemiologists where perfectly intelligent, reasonable people look at the data, think they understand how to interpret it, make perfectly reasonable conclusions that are not quite right because there's elements of the data interpretation that they don't quite get and there's nuances that they're just not trained on. And so what happens is you get you get conflicting information and right now public health messaging is such that it's it's a very individualistic thing right now where it's like, you know, you you look at the data, you make your own conclusions. Like, well, what what if you don't have the training to understand those conclusions? Um, and so we get a lot of confusion as to about what what's real, what's true, what's the correct interpretation. The other thing is we have all the conversations about health risks that are non-COVID related. So you have things like, well, does the shutdown increase things like joblessness, stress, suicide risk, and other things that are also important. So how do you balance these things out? And, and there's, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what the right answer is. Um, and those who are making decisions aren't making them um, confidently. And so this, this trepidation and timidity is, is felt um, everywhere. And, and it's, it sends the message that nobody really knows. And, and a lot of people then just sort of feel like there's nothing they can really do. And it's interesting, too, when you talk about public health messaging and, and how, uh, you know, doctor to doctor, um, there may not be the level of expertise in COVID-19 specifically that is needed to effectively take care of, uh, you know, a community. And it's interesting. I see parallels in the sleep world on that where, you know, you've got and, and yep. I've heard this not only from you, but from sleep expert after sleep expert, how not for a lack of trying, but um, sleep expertise is not something that a doctor who even aced everything they ever did in med school is probably very well versed in. Right. I think it's a good rule of thumb to know that the more that you know, um, what goes along with that is you start learning all the things you don't know. And the more the more confident you are in what you know, uh, the more you should really be questioning what you don't know. And and I think we, we have this issue that that the people who are real experts um, sometimes are the most qualify things the most because they realize that, well, there's limitations to what I'm saying. And I understand that. And I'm trying to be humble in my claims because I know that there's that it's not totally true or that we don't know for sure. Whereas you have other people who can be very confident in their knowledge, um, ironically being the ones who understand least how humble they should be. And, and that's that's always a problem. And, and in the sleep world, it's the case because, you know, take, take insomnia, for example. Where else in all of medicine do you have a condition that's this prevalent? So if it exists in maybe 10% of the population at any given moment as a diagnosable condition, that's this prevalent, that, that's associated with this many bad outcomes. We know insomnia is actually a leading cause of mental health problems in addition to functional problems, injuries, accidents, also uh, could potentially link to you know, in, in immune and cardiovascular function issues. So insomnia is a major health issue. So it's extremely common. It's important. We have treatments, uh, cognitive and behavioral treatments especially, that are highly low risk, that are highly effective, um, that are even recommended by, by pretty much any mainstream organization as the first line treatment for this very common condition. And they're not even that hard to implement. Actually, CBT for insomnia is not rocket science. It's actually relatively simple to implement compared to other behavioral and cognitive therapies. Yet, nobody gets trained on it in medical school. No, but psychiatrists don't get trained on it. It's not a core part of psychology training. Very few clinical psychology programs train on it at all. Social worker and nursing programs don't train on it, even though they could do it too. So you have this huge gap between what we know and what actually gets out there. And so then you have all these people who have learned everything in their curriculum, but are missing this huge thing and don't even know it. Amazing. Um, you used a great line when you were saying all of that. You said, humble in my claims. 
And that is the perfect springboard. I mean, we bring Michael on the show every week because he is a voracious reader of every piece of sleep science that comes out on a week-to-week basis. And so if you want to get up to date on what's going on in the sleep world, Michael is the guy to talk to. However, before we get to the things in the sleep world that are on your radar, I got to address the elephant in the room, which is that you and I are sitting recording this um, about an hour after you sent a tweet to a device manufacturer whose device claims to uh, include sleep tracking as part of their function and a sort of a cautionary thing that says, hey, you make a pretty decent device. Uh, stop being dishonest in your advertising. What's How much of this can we talk about without making it uncomfortable for you? Sure. So um, th- this th- there's... You know, if people want to look up the device, I don't necessarily want to name devices, but it's easy enough to look up. But so there's a lot of commercial sleep tracking devices out there that are being sold to researchers, to organizations, to individuals. And the, the, the technology behind sleep tracking is relatively mature, and it's, it's actually not that hard to get a pretty decent sleep tracking device. And this company in particular, um, it, it's not a company I, I necessarily dislike. Um, and actually, so th- what I tweeted was actually a retweet from a colleague uh, of mine who is also very much involved in the sleep technology space. And the point they bring up is actually really important. That th- this actually goes to sort of what we were talking about, this idea of messaging. And how do you communicate um, health-related messages in a way that stays honest, um, but doesn't get lost in qualification and jargon and um, obfuscation and, and, and that humility. How do, you, how do you tell the public, hey, we have a device that's really good without, without making a claim that's not true? And so I, I, one of the reasons I don't want to call it this device manufacturer specifically is they're not the only ones who do this. There are, I, can, I can name a few companies that their messaging is, is stuff I've had a problem with where instead of saying something like, we have a device that's relatively, that's, that's pretty accurate, they'll say we have the best device. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess, you know, every brand thinks they're better than brand X. Scientifically, that's an answerable question. It's not true. No one has the best device. Um, or it's like, we have the most accurate. When you say that about your device, I have a little more of a problem because now you're making a factual claim about your, you can't just say where, you could say you were accurate, fine. Say you're accurate, show me evidence of accuracy. Saying we're the most accurate, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure advertising does this all the time, but when you're talking about a device you want to trust, um, it becomes problematic because that's that's actually a factual claim that all of us in the scientific community would say, well, that's factually not true. That's you're, you're telling something you're saying something that's factually not true. Are you doing it? To, are you just exaggerating or are you are you purposely misleading people? Um, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. And that's what this tweet did. It's saying, look, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. Stop saying things that aren't that, that are actually not true. Another claim sure. that a lot of these devices will make is we are we are the gold standard. Um, there is only one gold standard in sleep. Um, there was a paper that w- that came out um, in the journal Sleep. It was an international collaboration uh, among uh, a number of leaders in the field. Um, it was it was led by a guy named Chris Deppner. Um, Max DiZambati at it in at SRI was on it. He's another major leader, Sean Drummond in Australia. Um, and there were a bunch of people on this paper. Basically, what they said: What is the gold standard for measuring sleep? And if you've got a device. How can you say how it compares to the gold standard? And it lays out the, um, the, the rules for this. And the gold standard is in-laboratory polysomnography. That is the only gold standard for measuring sleep in the field. It's not the gold standard because it's gold. It's actually not a perfect measurement. It's the gold standard because it's the accepted standard. It's the, it's the thing that everyone agrees is the best we've got for measuring what as close to what sleep is as we can get. Um, Anyone else claiming to be a gold standard is is stretching things a little beyond what those of us who care about these things are going to be okay with, because it's not gold standard. Even with risk-based devices, um, if you want to say there is a gold standard, there are devices that have been around for decades that have thousands of publications using them in many in hundreds of scientific studies 
that are not their device. Those devices, if, if anyone could claim to be a gold standard, it would be them. Are they the best? Are they the most accurate? You know, that's an open question. But those would sort of be the gold standard, not not anything released within the past few years. So yeah, I guess it's, imp- it's it's important to it's important to be honest that 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 um, you can have a good device, and I'm not actually saying that their device isn't that good. Um, actually, the, the evidence that there's there's one published paper out there that looks at it relative to sleep that shows that it's pretty darn good. Um, is it the most accurate? There's no evidence of that. Is it a gold standard? No. Stop telling people that stuff. Um, but then it gets to the question of how do you how do you sell something um, that you think is really good while still telling the truth? I got my first job as the creative director of an advertising agency when I was 19 years old. And one of the things that um, people in the ad world learn very early is to sort of stop wasting the reader's time, the listener's time, the viewer's time with empty claims like we're the best because everybody says we're the best. And best has become a term that realistically speaking means virtually nothing anymore uh, because everybody says, look, listen to the average uh, State of the Union address within the last couple of years and you hear how many different things are the best. And we all know on their faces that so many of those things just plain aren't true. So best doesn't mean anything anymore. Find some better facts to throw out there and some actual verifiable data and find a more creative way to tell me how good your product is without using silly words like best. It's just silly. Yeah. I mean, so, so and I think, and I think especially as sleep goes more mainstream, I, I think people need to be wary about claims like that where don't, don't just take it on its face. Um, Look for levels of accuracy. Uh, a, a typical sleep tracker will be 85 to 90-ish percent accurate on a minute-to-minute basis. Maybe a little above 90 if you have a relatively clean sample that's not going to be super messy. Um, anything outside of that range would make me a little suspicious because most of almost everyone is sort of in that range. If you boost 98, 99% accuracy, that raises a lot of suspicions on my end. Um, if you're if, if it's actually only 70% accurate, well, then maybe that's not a device worth worth going after because there's definitely better ones that are inexpensive enough to use. Um, so that, that's sort of a thing. And by accuracy, um, the way we define accuracy scientifically is you put someone in a lab or at home with a full EEG hookup and you on a minute by minute basis, you score. Are they awake or asleep based on their brainwave and movement and heart rate and breathing and all this stuff? Uh, that's the best we've got. Not perfect, best we've got. On a minute-by-minute basis or a 30-second by 30-second basis, you, you, you look at awake versus asleep. At the same time they're wearing the device, what did the device say on a minute-by-minute basis or 30-second by 30-second basis? The degree to which um, they agree that one says sleep and the other says sleep, one says wake, the other says wake, that is what I would call agreement. So out of 100% of those minutes or 30 second periods or whatever period you're looking at, what percent of those did they say the same thing? Um, It should be, you know, at least in the 80s, if not, you know, high 80s, low 90s percent accuracy. And even still, let's say it's 90% accurate and you're in bed for eight hours. That's 480 minutes. Something with 90% accuracy is wrong 48 out of those 480 minutes. Sure. Which is which is not which which is most people would say a forty eight minutes of the night being incorrect is is still more incorrect than they would like. Well, that's what we got. If it's less than that, um, then you know you start worrying about trusting the information. Well, and I start to see all the people on the internet that are talking about how um, and and you in a in a lot of ways were the one that got this ball rolling for me in terms of looking skeptically at some of these claims that are made and the difference between saying that my device is whatever it is ninety percent accurate. But again, it's only accurate sleep versus wake. You've got people who swear by their data from their their wrist tracker in terms of here's how many minutes of REM sleep I got last night. Here's how many minutes I was in uh, N3 sleep and all these kind of – and as I'm looking at that, I remember – 
eight months ago when I was in that camp and everything that I've learned since then that just makes me sit there and shake my head and go, nope, nope, you don't (laughs) Don't. get how these devices work. That's the problem. Yeah, I mean, it it goes back to this issue of humility. Um, a, a, A good scientist is usually very humble in their interpretations because they know every measurement has limitations. Like if you're doing math and just pure mathematics, fine. But when you're studying humans and you're studying something indirectly, we can't measure sleep directly. We can only guess at it by looking at things that are related to sleep mostly and we're making guesses. And the more you understand about this, the more you understand that it's at the end of the day, no matter how accurate it is, it's still just a guess. And, and you have to be open to the fact that it's, it's, not a, it's not a perfect guess, which is why when you look at studies, you know, they don't include one person. They include hundreds of people or dozens of people, at least, if not thousands of people, because there's lots of error. And the idea is if you're pooling all these people together, at least the error may wash out to some degree uh, and you can see a signal in there. And you don't know what's true and what's not true when you look at a single record. But when you look at things together, you could see where the truth seems to cluster. And, and anyone who's, who's doing anything other than that, either they're oversimplifying, which I try not to do, even though it's, it's sometimes hard to, to talk to people without burying them in, in well, maybe this could possibly, you know, um, without telling them anything useful. But at the same time, you don't want to overclaim either and, and go from go from oversimplifying to stretching the truth to being a little bit duplicitous. Um, and where's the line? I don't know. But any any scientifically valid measure is going to have error around it. And every scientist knows that, uh, which is why we're always qualifying everything. Um, and the more you can be humble about um, interpreting the measures, as much as it would be convenient not to, the more the more close to the actual truth you probably are. Sure. And I mean, uh, I'll tie this is hopefully one last time to, to my favorite example of the same thing from the nutrition world. Uh, and this is a cautionary statement for those who are thinking of going and buying one of those scales that purports to measure your uh, body fat with 100% accuracy, because the only 100% accurate test for body fat is a process called an autopsy, which is not really recommended for casual weight loss enthusiasts. Let's just leave it at that. Everything after an autopsy is a guess. And so it's the same in the sleep world. Everything short of going to a lab and having the electrodes strapped to your head, it's a guess. And some devices guess better than others. But most of the time, you know, I mean, you consider that uh, if you strike out two out of three times, you'll still get into the baseball hall of fame. Um, Wrist-worn devices and other sleep trackers are a little bit better than that, but they're still guessing. Yeah. And it's okay. It's guessing is better than nothing. Um, It's not perfect. and, And it is what it is. Um, okay, so now that I've derailed you for a whole mess of time here, uh, okay. there is some other stuff that I know is on your radar. So yeah. uh, without taking too much more of your time, give me the treetops. What's on your mind? Um, so here's two things off the top of my head. One is a paper that just came out um, in the journal Sleep, um, um, a group in France looking at dreams. And this was kind of an, this was an interesting question going at like, why do some people remember their dreams better than others? Um, and what they did was they actually looked at the at the brains of people waking up and, and how their brain functioned when they woke up. And basically the take home message was that um, people who were remembering more dreams, um, they it, it, their brains became a little more active and alert and, and memory systems were a little more quickly to engage when they woke up versus people who remembered them less, which just goes to show that that the dream itself is in what we remember. It's when our consciousness um, intrudes and takes a peek into the dream that we remember it. And that's the part what, what, what that's the part that we can form memories of most of the time. And and what this study really showed with with brain scans and and, and all the all, all this technology basically showing that, you know, there's a reason for that. Some people, you know, some sometimes the brain will engage this memory process 
much more quickly when waking up. And those people, you know, the door into the dream hasn't fully closed yet and they can see it and they can record it because memory is now active. Where so for some people, those those systems are taking a little longer to go online. And that's might be why some people just don't seem to remember many dreams, even if they're waking up from them. So that was really interesting. The other thing, um, maybe a little more selfishly, um, uh, that I that I've been reading is is an issue about um, sleep and COVID vaccines. So um, a couple months ago, um, I, I co-wrote a piece with two colleagues of mine. One uh, being um, Fabian Fernandez, who's a colleague of mine here at the University of Arizona, who's a great circadian scientist, um, and Julie Flygar, who is the um, the head of an organization called Project Sleep, which is a patient advocacy organization. Uh, we basically wrote this sort of thought piece uh, during the pandemic about about narcolepsy and how um, what the H1N1 pandemic taught us was that narcolepsy is essentially an, actually an autoimmune disorder um, because some of the people who got H1N1 vaccines developed narcolepsy because it seemed to because it it targeted those same cells by accident. And it taught us about the underlying biology of narcolepsy as an autoimmune condition um, because we accidentally simulated it with a vaccine. And, and what we said in the piece was, look, we don't think coronavirus causes narcolepsy, um, but this idea of implicating this novel virus will, will target the immune system in a way in the real world that we haven't seen before. We just haven't seen it before because it's a novel virus. And it'll be interesting to see if, it, if it's doing anything in the brain, because at the time we didn't know if it did. And now we, are, now we do know it can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause changes in the brain. When we wrote this, that wasn't out yet. Um, but if it does do something in the brain, it'll be interesting to see if it's doing anything to um, sleep phenomenologically. And that might give us a clue as to what might be going on in the brain. Um, and just this week, um, a response to that was actually published um, by um, actually the, the world's leading narcolepsy researcher actually wrote a piece uh, in response to um, what we had written that as somewhat of an of an update um, in response to this issue of developing an H1N1 vaccine now that that's happening. And basically, you know, you can see it online at the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine website. Um, but um, sort of taking what we wrote as a jumping off point, but then really getting into this is, you know, one of the leading researchers in the world on this issue. And, and what they talked about was a little bit about the story about how the H1N1 pandemic taught us about this autoimmune issue and how and why the vaccine targeted certain cells and how, what we can potentially learn for that as uh, as as companies are developing um, COVID vaccines. And is it possible that COVID vaccines might be doing the same thing? What do we know about the molecular structure of one virus versus the other um, that might play a role here? You know, it was it was just sort of interesting to read that. Um, I mean, it was on my radar because they were responding to our paper. But there's, to be honest, is much more thorough. I mean, and, and I, I think it's better. I mean, ours was a thought piece where theirs was, well, let's take this thought. And what do we know about the underlying molecular structure of these vaccines and, and, and these viruses? And, you know, what we've learned over the past few months since this other one was written, uh, how do we take this forward? So that was kind of cool. So that's been on my mind, too. And so if people want to read that, um, I think the accepted paper is freely available. Um, uh, the journal Clinical Sleep Medicine website. If not, um, um, it at least at least um, parts of it are. I will make sure that we've got a link to uh, whatever the most exhaustive version of both <laughs> pieces is uh, okay. in, uh, on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. Uh, Michael, as always, appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this. All right. Thank you very much. There you go, Dr. Michael Grandner on the Snooze Button Podcast. Uh, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening through the book and the conversation with Michael. I'm looking forward to seeing your feedback either on um, feedback at thesnoozebutton.com, that email address, or on social media at Get Your Snooze On. I'm interested to hear your comments. Back next week with another new episode as we get into the conversation about does cannabis do anything for your sleep? Really? We'll have that conversation on next week's show. Till then, my name's Neil. Hey, get some sleep, would you?